perhaps one of the greatest preachers to ever stand in a pulpit was a man by the name of George Whitfield. See, Whitfield and his friend John Wesley revolutionized preaching by being the first preachers in many years to not limit their preaching to churches. Instead, they went to the open air, they went to the streets and to fields, and would preach to all who would listen. And George Whitfield was one of the key players in what is known as the first great awakening that swept across England and America in the 1700s. And Whitfield was such a great preacher that people would come to hear him from far and wide uh, to listen to his words. It's estimated that uh, during Whitfield's time, about 80% of the American colonists at one point in their life had heard Whitfield preach. See, Whitfield was so commanding that when he spoke, even professional actors were envious of him. A British actor who had been following Whitfield around, listening to him preach, said this about him. Whitfield could make his audiences weep or tremble merely by varying his pronunciation of the word Mesopotamia. I would give a hundred guineas if I could say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. And it was none other than Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of America, that said this about Whitfield's preaching and its effect. I observed the extraordinary influence of his oratory on his hearers and how much they admired and respected him, even though his common abuse of them by assuring them that they were naturally half beasts and half devils. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless and indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious, so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. See, whether people agreed with Whitfield or not, they could all agree on this. Whitfield was a man who preached with authority. And the beauty in it all was that Whitfield knew that in himself he had no authority. But only when he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ and His Word. You see, any and all authority comes from one man. And this morning, that's what we're going to be looking at. The absolute, all-encompassing authority of Jesus. And so with that, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 44. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible, but you don't have one, there's, uh, there's Bibles at the back that you can, you can grab if you would like one. And if you don't have one to take home with you, that is our, uh, our gift uh, to you. So Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had diseases, all those who had, who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now perhaps you are like me and you look around out at the world and you see a lot of rebellion against God. You see the, the world celebrating the slaughtering of unborn children and then calling it reproductive rights. You see people marching through the streets flaunting their debauchery and waving their flags and calling it human rights. You see a, a prime minister saying that you are on the far right if you believe in parental rights. And even with humans out of the equation, we still have the natural challenges that we face as a result of sin. Natural disasters, sickness, injury, loss of loved ones, and so much more. And it can lead us to wonder, maybe, just maybe, sin and death and the devil are the ones that are controlling things and calling all the shots. Our passage this morning shows us that that just isn't true. There is no force, no cause, no movement of Satan or man that cannot be overcome by the power and authority of Jesus. And so this, this passage is meant to inspire within us hope. You know, we are on the winning side. Nothing is outside of the power of Jesus. Jesus has authority over all. And specifically, we're going to be looking at, at three points, three areas pertaining to the power of Jesus' word. We'll see that Jesus' word has power over the spiritual realm. 
Jesus' word has power over the natural realm. And then finally, Jesus' word has power over this earthly realm. And so that's where we're going to be headed this morning if you're taking notes and following along. But before we get into that, let's get caught up a little bit on the setting of our passage. Look at verses 31 to 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So we have here Jesus, he's in Nazareth, and he leaves Nazareth, and he heads to a place called Capernaum. Now Capernaum was a a decently sized city. It was located along the northwestern shore of the city of Galilee, and it's really where, where Jesus did a lot of his ministry work. For example, it was here where Simon or Peter and Andrew and John and James were all called to be his disciples. We see that Jesus kind of uses this as a sort of home base for his operations. And now Jesus enters into Capernaum, and and he goes and he does what he always does. He goes and he starts to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And just as the people in Nazareth, remember from last week, were, were amazed and astonished at his teaching, the same is true with the townspeople of Capernaum. It says they were astonished at his teaching, and then it says this, for his word possessed authority. Now, this is important because the rest of our passage is going to be framed by this statement, for his word possessed authority. And now, what does it mean then that his word possessed authority? When Mark's account of this this event in his gospel, this is what he says. He says, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. You see, the teachers of that time were known to be people who quoted more than they preached. They spent all their time quoting rabbis and traditions of other teachers, but preached with no authority themselves. But then all of a sudden, Jesus comes along, and he is a a man who preaches the exact opposite way. He comes, and his his preaching is not filled with fluff and traditions, the, the opinions and thoughts of men, but he is preaching and proclaiming to the people the very Word of God, for He Himself is God. Think think of it. Jesus in the the Sermon on the Mount will go on to say something that is really radical. Say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And He says so with binding authority. How How can a man do such a thing? It's because Jesus was preaching with the authority of the Son of God who knows and reveals the will and the word of God. And so that's what's what's meant by Jesus possessing this authority with his word. And we're also going to see that this authority is not, it it carries power with it to cause changes and not uh, not just in speech and how people respond to his speech, but actually in the the physical realm that we live in. And we see this in verses 33 and 34. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One 
of God. And so this leads to our, our first point of the sermon, that Jesus' word has power over the spiritual realm. You see, in this encounter, there's a, a man who is uh, being controlled by a demon who comes into the synagogue, and he, and he ends up being face-to-face with Jesus. Now, I think there's a, a quick point of application for us from this, and that's that we can expect spiritual and supernatural opposition to our ministry. See, Jesus has just started his ministry, and he's already battled uh, Satan, really before he, he started anything, and now in his first uh, encounter in this synagogue, he's battling a demon. You see, the devil and his demons, they're, they're not going to go down easy. You know, they know that their doom is written in stone, and they know that they are headed for the lake of fire, but they still want to take down as many as they can. It's an, an analogy that I often think of when I think of this kind of um, their, victory, their, their defeat is already there, but we're still longing for the full and final defeat is that of uh, the Nazis in World War II. The Nazis essentially lost the war um, around D-Day. When the Allies took back uh, part of the continent, the Nazis, uh, there was really no, no real chance of them winning the war. But what did they do? Well, they kept fighting, and they kept fighting, and lives kept being lost, people kept being killed, until eventually both the American and Russian forces pushed them all the way back to their, their main city of Berlin. And likewise, the enemies of God are in the same state. They're not going to give up uh, against fighting against us. And so we should, as Christians then, expect opposition from the enemies of God when we're doing the work of the Lord. And I would even argue that the more we're doing the work of the Lord, the more we should expect the opposition to come. If you're a Christian who just sits on your butt all day and does nothing to advance the kingdom of God, then you're not really any threat to the devil and to his kingdom. But if you are a Christian who is serious about your faith, who is serious about advancing God's kingdom in this world, then you are a major threat to the enemies of God. And they're going to throw everything at you. And so all that to say, you know, if you're endeavoring in some sort of work for the Lord, don't be discouraged when you face opposition by the enemies of God, earthly opposition or spiritual opposition. It probably means that what you're doing is right and you're headed in the, in the right direction. And now, back to our story, we see Jesus, he's headed in the right direction, he's facing opposition from a demon. And quickly, let's talk about what is a demon. You know, we, we, we read through the, whole, the Old Testament, and we see that there's, there's actually quite little mention of demons. But then all of a sudden we open up our Bibles to the Gospels and Jesus' ministry, and it seems like around every corner he's encountering a demon. And so what are these demons? Uh, what are they? Who are they? Now no verse outright says, you know, these are the demons and this is where they come from. But there are a few passages, uh, specifically Revelation chapter 12, where we're told that there's this war that has gone on between Michael, the archangel, and Satan, where 
Other angels had joined Satan in his rebellion against God, but they lost the battle and then were cast down out of heaven to earth. And these fallen angels are what we call demons. And now they roam the earth and they are serving Satan and seeking to oppose and destroy the works of God and to corrupt the world. That's their mission, to serve uh, their father, the devil, and to corrupt this world. And so we think of them kind of of like these henchmen of the devil. There's little workers that are sent out to bring rebellion and evil into this world. And now certain people have thought certain things towards demons even within Christian circles. You know, some people dismiss the idea of demons as superstitious nonsense. You know, they're quite rare and they have little power, if any. And then there's others who can become quite obsessed with demons. I remember talking to uh, one Christian who visited our church uh, during COVID, and she told me, why doesn't your church do altar calls? You know, churches should do more altar calls. One time I was at a church and they did an altar call, and when people walked up, I saw a bunch of demons just grabbing onto people's backs, and then they were released from those demons. And that kind of made me think, Okay, I, I don't think that's actually true. I think that's a little bit of, but, bit of an obsession with demons. And C.S. Lewis, uh, he, he talks about this a little bit in his screw tape letters, except he's talking a little more broadly of humanity and all. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, that is the, the devils, by both errors, and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so he's warning against then obsession, thinking everything is a demon, and uh, saying demons have no power and no authority and, and no, no say or no influence in this world. And so then that is how we should think as Christians about demons. You know, the proper belief prescribed in the Bible is that demons do exist, that they are a legitimate threat and enemy in this world, and yet we ought not to be consumed by them or overwhelmed by fear of them. And now this demon in our story, uh, he recognizes Jesus. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. Now, that term, the Holy One of God, is, is used pretty rarely in the Bible, but often in reference, uh, but, but, when, sorry, but when it is, in reference to those who have been anointed by the Lord. It was used of Aaron, it was used of Samson when he was anointed by the Lord, and it was used of Elisha when they were doing the work of God. And now the demon, he's saying this because he recognizes this same anointing on Jesus. Jesus is the Holy One of God come down to do the will of God. And he's come to do it in a far greater manner than all of those who had come before him. And so you can tell here that, that the demon knows that the end is, is near for him. And he calls out, what have you to do with us? And some of your translations might say, um, leave us alone. Leave us alone. And so essentially the, the demon is saying, like, can you just go on your way? Go on your way and let us be. Let us do the things that we want to do. Let us bring evil in this world. Don't 
don't oppose us. See, the foul, foul creatures of hell do not like to be opposed by uh, the workers of God. And it's really a, a double standard that we've seen in this passage. You know, they like to oppose the work of God, but they don't like to be opposed by God. And we see similar things in our society today. You know, certain movements want to drag Christianity and its morals through the mud, but then the moment Christians stand up and oppose their wickedness, all of a sudden, Christians are the bigots and the intolerant ones. But you got to be careful you don't fall into this, this trap that they're, that they're setting, like this demon is trying to set. You know, they're trying to get you to back off so that they can go on with their evil agenda, just like, just like the demon is doing here with Jesus. And so as Christians, what you need to do is you need to get used to their, oper- to their opposition. You know, get used to being called a bigot. Get used to being called deplorable. Get used to being called closed-minded or whatever word they can think of for you. And continue on in righteousness and service of the Lord. You're going to be opposed if you seek to do the will of God uh, on this, this earth. And so be like Jesus, who, who doesn't let this distract him, but, but says, no, I'm going to deal with this. I'm not going to uh, let you go on in your evil and wickedness. And so look at verse 35 to 37. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. So we see here Jesus with the simple words, Be silent, come out of him, cast the demon out of the man. Now he doesn't do some ritualistic exorcism. I was reading up, and uh, Josephus, a historian at the time uh, of, the, um, of the Jews, when they were around this second temple uh, Judaism period, talks about how some of the exorcists of the time would do some pretty wonky things. You know, they'd uh, give the person poison with hope that it would poison the demon. Uh, or they would um, recite Psalm 91 three times, and then they would blow a loud ram's horn at a certain pitch in order to shudder and shock the demons, and it, and, and it would leave from the person. But we see here that with Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. He simply speaks, and the demons obey. Now, who has ever carried that sort of authority? Now, earlier, the demon says, have you come to destroy us? And Jesus, by his words, says, absolutely, yes. Be silent and come out of him. Reminds me of 1 John 3, verse 8, which, Terry, you quoted uh, this week in Bible study. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what 1 John 3, verse 8 says. See, the devil wants to enslave, but Jesus comes to set free. The devil wants to, to turn people away from God, but Jesus comes to turn people to God. Jesus promised just a few verses ago, in, when he's quoting Isaiah 61, that he has come to set the captives at liberty. And that's exactly what's going on here. He's setting this man free from, from this 
demon who is enslaving him. He's, he's releasing him from the bondage of this supernatural evil. And so what then is our, is our takeaway from this first point? Well, though Satan and his demons are opposing the work of God, they're no match for the authoritative word of Jesus. And so that's the first point. Now moving on to the second point, we see that Jesus' word not only has power over the supernatural realm, but his word has power over the natural realm as well. Look at verses 38 to 40. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So here we have Jesus. He's, he's leaving the synagogue, and he's just had this encounter with a demon, and now he enters the house of Simon where he, ha- where he, where he encounters another problem that faces humanity. See, Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a high fever. Now Luke, being a physician, he, he inserts this term high to indicate that it's no regular fever. Jesus isn't healing some typical fever that we often get. This is, this is so an intense of a fever that it's, it's debilitating this woman. She's unable to, to be amongst the people. They have to go and beseech Jesus on her behalf because she can't even stand up and speak with him. It's interesting that just as Jesus rebukes the demon, he comes to her and he actually rebukes the fever and it immediately leaves her and she is healed. And now this is the only time where it says that Jesus rebukes a sickness. Other times he just heals the sickness. Um, And so I don't think the, the point that we should take from this is, you know, if someone's sick, we need to go into their house and lay hands on them and rebuke their sicknesses. This, this wasn't normative for Jesus. What he's showing us here is that Jesus is coming to give release from oppressors. He's rebuking those things that are, are oppressing and binding the people of God. He's giving, he's giving freedom from the oppression of sickness. You see, sickness is not something that, that has entered in, it is something that has entered into the world because of our sin. If there were no fall of man in the garden, there would be no sickness. But now our bodies aren't perfect. They, they can't fight uh, disease like they should be able to. Our cells will mutate and cause cancer. Harmful viruses and bacteria have spread throughout the world. Sickness is everywhere and part of the natural world that we live in. And the Bible looks at sickness as, as something that is wrong with this world. You know, sickness is, is never really looked at in a positive light in the Bible. Now, God definitely can use sickness for good, and He does all the time. He grows our faith through sickness. He, he builds us up through difficulties and trials. But that doesn't mean that the sickness itself is good. You know, it's, a, it's a result of the fall. And that's why it will be completely wiped away in the new heavens and the new earth. But Jesus comes here and he, and he shows that he has power over this enemy. Sickness is an enemy and he has power over it even before that future time when sickness will be fully gone. Now, sickness might be a part of the natural world, but the natural world, guess what? 
It's Jesus' domain. He created the human body and he sustains the human body and he can heal the human body. And we see that this isn't just some fluke of Jesus. And Jesus didn't, didn't get lucky and, and happened to pick the woman who was already on her way up uh, feeling better. We see in verse 40 that when the sun goes down, when the sun was setting, all those who had any sick, who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. See, Jesus has the power to heal. That's what this this passage is trying to demonstrate to us. Not only does he have the power to heal, but he has the compassion to heal. He heals those who come to him. And so the question then might be, what does this mean for us today? Well, I think at the least that we should never think that anything is too difficult for God to heal or do. We should never say that that disease is too powerful for God. God can heal any disease. God can make the blind see. God can make the lame walk. God can do anything that He wants and fix anything that He wants. And so as the people of God, I, I think that we should pray more than we do to see the healing hand of God in this world. So that's kind of the, the first takeaway uh, from this, this miracle that Jesus does. A second thing I think we can take away from this is, is look at the response of Simon's mother-in-law to her healing. What does she do when she is healed? What well, says that she rose and began to serve them. And so we see here that Jesus heals that we might serve. And so if you're here and you are a a Christian, your calling is the exact same. God has healed you, not from a physical ailment, but a spiritual one. He has taken your dead and lifeless body and He has made it alive through Jesus Christ on the cross. And you know what? That is is an even greater miracle than what He did with Simon's mother-in-law. He was raising the dead when He saved you from your sin. And, and look, at, look at her response to his grace. She doesn't just say, thanks for the help, now go on and join the party. No, she began to serve the Lord. And how much more are we to do that when God has saved us from the wrath of God for all eternity? See, our mission is the same. Jesus healed us, and now we must be his servants, his slaves, as Paul says. And so then I want to I want to ask you, would you say that you are living your life in service to the Lord, in service of the Lord, going out and doing His work and His mission? I don't really think that reading your Bible every day, which we should do, coming to church on Sunday, I don't think we could say, yeah, I'm full-blown on board for the mission of God serving Him. What... Well, if you were to take your life and look at it, would you have a satisfactory answer to that? Are you living your life in service to the Lord? Are you his, his servant and His slave? Now moving on to our third and final point. We've seen thus far that Jesus' word has power over the spiritual realm. We've seen it has power over the natural realm. And finally, we'll see that Jesus' word has power over this earthly realm. 
Now look at verses 42 and 44 to 44. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So in this scene, essentially, uh, you have Jesus departing to a place where he can be by himself. You'll notice that Jesus often does this in the Gospels. It's usually to go and to, to pray. But I also think it, it shows us a little bit his humanity. And Jesus is a man, and he needs rest like the rest of us. He's been spending the whole Sabbath day, first in the synagogue, encountering demons, then Simon's house, healing a a uh, sick woman, and then when the sun goes down, everybody comes to him and he, he heals their diseases and casts out their demons. And so he shows here that, that he's a man who needs rest. But the people are, are worried now because they think that he has left them. And so they're going looking for him and, and they find him and they try to keep him from leaving Capernaum because of the mighty work that he has done there. And the words Jesus says here are going to set the stage really for the rest of his ministry. He says this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For, for, this, for I was sent for this purpose. Now what is Jesus saying here? Because I've, I've said here that the point of, of this is that Jesus, has, Jesus' word has power over this earthly realm. How am I, how am I getting that out of this passage? Well, first, we see that Jesus says he must preach the good news. So his ministry, though it involves casting out demons, though it involves healing sickness, his ministry is primarily this. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I got in a conversation last night uh, with, a, with a friend, and he primarily sees the, the mission of the church to meet the, the, the material needs of this world to go and feed the sick and take care of the hungry. But I think that's a misplaced view. See, that wasn't Jesus' primary mission. It was to go and preach the good news of the gospel, of salvation, repentance, and faith for salvation to the cities around him. We don't neglect the material needs like Jesus doesn't neglect them, but we don't elevate them above the real mission, which is to go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I have, I have a message for the people, this is even greater value than physical health. I have a message that will save their souls from an eternity in hell. And then he specifically says here that the message that he's preaching is that of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And now this is going to become a major theme throughout the book of Luke. We'll encounter this more than once as we work through this book. And so what then does he mean by the kingdom of God? What is he talking about? I think it's exactly as it sounds. That Jesus is coming and he is establishing a rule, a reign, a dominion of God. And his kingdom will have certain ethics and laws that will be good and righteous and special citizens who will be part of this kingdom and live their lives in service of their king following his mission and his desires. So I think that is the kingdom of God. And now there's a, a big debate in Christianity whether 
the kingdom of God has any physical reality to it? Or is it simply a, a spiritual kingdom? You know, is, is, when we say Jesus is king, do we mean that Jesus is king of all things? Or do we mean that Jesus is, is king of our hearts, sitting on the throne of our hearts where he rules and reigns? And I think that, that that second thing is definitely true. And I would say that the kingdom of God is primarily a spiritual kingdom where Christ reigns as, our, as Lord of our hearts. But I don't think it's limited to a spiritual kingdom. See, the kingdom of God is, is meant to, to creep in and to invade the earthly kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is, is meant to be manifest here on earth, not just in our hearts, but in our marriages and in our parenting, in our jobs and in how we run our businesses, in our governments and how we run our countries. All things are to be brought under the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the kingdom of God. That's why Christians are told to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, what, are we, what are we praying there? We are praying that the rule of God that exists now in heaven would come down and manifest itself on earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That the earth would become God's kingdom where righteousness dwells and not just in our hearts but all around of us in every sphere of life that the kingdom of God spreads to and then redeems. John Calvin said it well. He said, The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. But the question is, how do we get there? How do we get, where, where do we start? Because right now, the kingdom looks pretty invisible to me. Well, it starts with this. The words of Jesus. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God advances through the proclamation of the gospel. Apart from changed hearts, why should we ever expect a changed society? Apart from a repentant people, why should we ever expect a repentant government? And, 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 and you may be, be skeptical. You know, is this really possible? Really, we think Jesus can, can come and do this? But we've seen Jesus' authority over the demons and the supernatural world. We've seen Jesus' authority over sickness and the natural world. Why not? His authority over the earthly systems and kingdoms of this world. Are the governments of this world too powerful that God's kingdom cannot overcome them? Are the peoples of this world too sinful that the Lord who raises the dead from life cannot bring revival? Absolutely not. Jesus' word, the preached gospel, has the power to save. As Paul in Romans 1 verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so let me read for you these words from the book of, of Daniel. And from this is, a, this is a vision that Nebuchadnezzar has in Daniel chapter 2, and no one is able to interpret it. And then Daniel comes along, and he he tells him what the vision uh, is and what it means. And I think this demonstrates the point that I'm trying to say here. And so it says this. You saw, O king, uh, you, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image 
This image, mighty and exceeding and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. So there's this big image standing there before the king. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest was of its chest and arms of silver in the middle, and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So you can picture this, this statue made of different, uh, different uh, elements. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. See, that is the kingdom of God. It comes and it smashes the kingdoms of this world and it spreads and it fills the world from sea to sea. See, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so in conclusion, in just a few verses, Jesus has shown us here that there is no enemy that he cannot overcome. You know, the supernatural enemies of God are destroyed at his very words. The consequences of sin that we see in our natural world are subject to his healing hand. And even the kingdoms of this world, though mighty and powerful, are no match for the kingdom of God. And so have hope this morning, brothers and sisters. Jesus has overcome Whatever it is that you are going through, Jesus is able. He is able. And even if his, in his mighty wisdom, he chooses not to remove this thing with which you are struggling, he is able to sustain you through it. Let me finish with these words from Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.